0: amen. Great to be with you again today. Well, I wanted to thank all the people who prayed for and helped out with and participated in VBS this last week. It was an amazing vacation Bible school, best we've ever had, bigger than we've ever had, so many volunteers, more than ever. And it was just, it was a blessing to see the kids being blessed and all that's going on. And and then I couldn't believe that it all got torn down. So... Between services, they were showing video of it, and if it's something you prayed for and you didn't get a chance to be here, check out some of those videos. It was really, certainly an amazing uh, week, for sure, for our kids. You know, um, an important question for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ is, what's the difference between other gods and our God? Like, why is the God of the Bible distinct from other religions and other <clears throat> concepts of deity? And a lot of times people ask us that question, and I, there are a lot of ways that you could respond to it, but I would say if I was going to reduce it down, certainly the biggest difference between the God of the Bible and every other God, see, all gods are you know, transcendent, meaning transcendent means you transcend reality. You're over and above and outside the realm of what we would consider to be our normal way of life. So by definition, a god should be transcendent. But the god of the Bible is also what we call eminent. Eminent means right here, right on top of you. It's like if it's eminent, it's here, it's happening at any second. And so the, the, the difficulty of understanding a God who is both transcendent and eminent is obvious. How can you be other as a God would be, but at the same time be so close? But that's the God of the Bible, and there isn't any other God who is that way. And as a result our god the god of the bible the kinds of the ways that he communicates like for instance he created the world in genesis 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth wow but then he makes a person and he physically breathes into him the breath of life such intimacy and then what kind of a god creates this beautiful world and then he shows up on a daily basis with his creation, and walks with them in the cool of the day. Let's take a walk in the garden. Right away in Genesis, you see, this is not a God like other gods. He's intimate. Obviously, eventually, as Christians, we know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the one who without him, nothing else was made, and here he is, God with us, Emmanuel, and so. But it's also the, this transcendence and eminence is also seen in the kind of people that God chooses to reveal Himself through, that stand out as uniquely different from those in every other religion. It seems like God deliberately chooses people to represent Him who are flawed who are unimpressive, who aren't the people that we would have chosen. He loves choosing the simple things of the world to confound the wise. And it shows up in his representatives. Last Sunday, Justin shared with us from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses. Here's Moses, one of the greatest leaders in all of history for Yahweh, for the God of the Bible, He's a guy, first of all, he's like really old. Before he does anything meaningful, he's 80. And he's been a shepherd for the last 40 years. And he's married to a pagan. And he's, he talks funny. And he has no desire at all to be anyone. And he's arguing with God constantly. That's the guy you choose to lead your people? Yes, yes. Because there's something very real and something very eminent about using someone like him. Then in the Old Testament, you have David. Oh, he's the man after God's heart. David, the guy who, as a kid, they didn't even want him to participate in family stuff. He was that redheaded kid that was taking care of the sheep. And then as he grew up and he became king... Wasn't much better. He was a horrible father. He was a horrible husband. Like in so many ways, he was a failure. And what you see from reading his stuff, the guy was chronically depressed. Who would pick a chronically depressed person to represent God? That doesn't make sense, except that, wow, that's real. That's Unusual. That's not a guy who would promote himself. That's not shtick. Nobody would have made that up. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, almost every representative of God was depressed. And if you have a problem with that, Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Ultimately, when it gets to Jesus as the ultimate expression of this transcendent, eminent God, that shocks you as well. He's born in a way that people were suspicious, like nobody knows who his dad is. And he was a guy who lived in a podunk town, and he, he surrounded himself with, I mean, his disciples were like some fishermen, one IRS guy, um, a, a zealot. Uh, it's like this assortment of losers that this is it. And the more Jesus talked, the less people followed him. Because it's like, okay, we liked when he was feeding everybody, but now he's said, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. I'm out of here. God revealed himself in his son in that way. That's typical of the people that God uses. Why? Because he wants you to realize this is real. This is not a show. Now every other foreign god their leaders were royalty their leaders were hype their leaders were the best and the brightest and acted like they were otherworldly and they were surrounded by wealth and success and you know by you know lackeys who would surround them and do all their will that's the way gods who are only transcendent that's the way they're represented gods so big I want you to see, I'm big too, and I represent him. The God of the Bible isn't that way at all. You, when you look at the disciples, the people that He used, again, like look at Paul, who wrote half the old, half the New Testament, 14 books of the New Testament Paul wrote, and he was a guy who people didn't like him. The there are people who mention in history and extra biblical history that he was a very funny looking guy, that he had a big nose and he was kind of ugly. Like really, you're going to use that kind of a guy? We would never put that guy on TV unless it was, you know, to laugh at him. As far as that goes, Isaiah talking about Jesus said that, you know, he wasn't that good looking. Now, I know that's a shock to you because when we see a movie about Jesus, he's like the best looking guy in the room. But as Gail Irwin always says, Why did they have to have Judas come and show him which one was Jesus? Because he just looks like a regular guy. But again, Isaiah 53, he goes, who would have ever believed it? He came up before him as a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. So all along, that's the way it is. All along, every other religion emphasizes the transcendence, and elevates people who look like transcendents, promote the best and the brightest and the greatest type to say, look at really cool people follow our religion. That's a huge difference because the message that God wants to communicate is precisely the opposite of that. Now we'll see it today as we look in Revelation chapter 2. We're going through the letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches in Turkey. And before this, the first three were large, prominent cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, as then you come to um, Pergamos. It's like these are prominent places. Now the next one is a city called Thyatira. And it was the smallest of all these seven cities and really hasn't made a big dent in history at all. Thyatira was a crossroads. It was about 50 miles inland from Pergamos, and it was really in a a valley, and everyone went through there, but nobody went there. Nobody's like, okay, let's go to Thyatira. They're like, I'm gonna go to Thyatira on my way to Pergamos. It's kind of like Fresno, you know? You don't actually go to Fresno, you go through Fresno. You might stop at the McDonald's before you drive up into the Sierras, but so, Thyatira was a working-class town. It was actually the biggest industrialized for that era because all of the trades were there. Um, Remember reading about Lydia in Philippi who was a seller of purple, which was their big flashy fashion statement at the time? Paul and Silas met her in Philippi, and she was converted to Christ, but it says that she was from Thyatira, we know from archaeology that the city of Thyatira had all these basically legal these unions, industrial unions, where there was a leather workers' guild, there was a seller of purples guild, there were other furniture guilds. They just made stuff there. When The city was destroyed. If you go there today, there's like there's nothing interesting archaeologically at all. I mean, they dug, they dig and dig and dig, and they found like alleys with warehouses. It's just not impressive. And yet Jesus is addressing specifically the church that's in this town of Thyatira. And, it, and so it's definitely interesting, and some of the things in it are certainly unique. So in verse 18, Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, now again, as we've said before, angel means messenger. These could be messengers or most likely most theologians say that they were like the leaders, the pastor of the church because certainly messenger is a pretty good, pretty good reference to um, the person who's teaching in the church. So to that person, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. He sees, and he kicks. <laughs> you know, it's like his eyes can burn right through you. He's, let, he's taking part of this description from Revelation chapter one, this vision of the glorified Jesus. But he's saying, I want you to understand. I know what's going on. I see what's going on. I see beneath the surface of everything that's going on, and I'm stepping in, with brass on my feet. I'm dealing with this. So, ooh, okay. And he starts out, as with most of the letters, I know your works. That is, I know what you do. But he's really, in Thyatira, as with most of the other churches, he tells them something good, tells them something bad, tells them something good, but you know he actually wrote it to tell you something bad. He just threw the good stuff in, but this is pretty good. I know your works. I know your love. In Ephesus, their problem was they had works, but they were losing their first love. He goes, you guys are truly loving. I see it. Your service. You're all involved in ministry. Your faith. You really believe. Your patience. You hang in there when things get difficult. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You're feeling pretty good if you're a thigh tire at this point. He's going, I see what you're doing. You're loving, you're faithful, you're working hard, and you know what? You're actually getting better. What you're doing now is better than what you used to be doing. Where with Ephesus, it's like you guys used to be loving, and now you're not. With Thyatira, he's like, I see what you're doing, and it's awesome. You're getting even better. However, and this was awkward, I'm sure, for them, I have a few things against you. And the few things are really one thing Um, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The Greek word there for woman, gune, is a word that also is translated wife. Most of the ancient... Um, translations of this passage rendered it your wife so it could be some other woman but it's possibly as he's talking to the pastor this could be the pastor's wife and if it seems strange for you to identify Jezebel with the pastor's wife you just probably haven't been around church enough but uh, (laughs) sorry But whether it's his wife or a woman. Now, doesn't it seem strange that not just a woman teaching in the church, this is the only example of it in the New Testament, but teaching and seducing my servants, leading them away to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. How can a church that's so healthy be having someone teaching them to Sacrifice to idols, and that it was okay to be sexually immoral. And why in the world do you need Jesus to tell you that's not a good sermon? You should take that off your webpage when she speaks on that topic. Well, it's highly unlikely that a woman was in a church that's this solid, in there in Thyatira, who's literally telling people that you can go commit fornication, and it's fine, and that certainly you are able to worship idols. That's, that's kind of far-fetched that, for, for one thing, that it would happen in a good church, but even more so that you'd have to mention it. That you'd have to go, by the way, there's just this one thing. Now, these terms are used often in Scripture, to speak metaphorically. Quite often, when even the word fornication, pornia, it's a word that at its root means to sell. So you would use this term to refer, in a sense, he's saying, she's leading you to sell out, it is probably closer to maybe what he was really sharing. And the idea of idolatry there are a lot of different kinds of idolatry. Idolatry always, it is not about the particular idols. People people don't worship little stone things. People worship these transcendent concepts of deity that are represented by graven images. Those idols are made in the image of the creator in the same way that we are made in the image of God. So what I'm suggesting is perhaps that and you know you can disagree with me it's fine but this seems more plausible that this woman is speaking in this church and maybe she's even saying good things but there's something about the way she is presenting it that causes them to sell out that causes them to make compromises that causes them to do exactly the opposite of what a follower of an eminent God would do. They are trying to become relevant. And some of the other, they're the smallest city of all these seven cities. So it's like, come on, we need to do the things that other people are doing. We have a world that we need to compete with. We need to find God, you know, ways that we can capture the modern technology and the methods in order to make ourselves more attractive. If that was in fact the message, you can see how they would fall for it. You could also see how it's something that God would say, that is not what I'm about. I am about carrying a true message of an eminent God. And I communicate that in particular ways. And I don't want you to get the idea that putting somebody in there who's flashier and more appealing and who actually herself becomes kind of an idol, because really Jezebel in 1 Kings, the other thing about about this woman is she calls herself a prophetess. She's self-anointed. She promoted herself. Just as Jezebel in, in 1 Kings Her husband, Ahab, was king, but she moved in and took over with power and she led him around. And she ultimately, I mean, she was a horrible nightmare for Elijah and putting hits out on him and everything else. But it was all in the name of, I'm doing what's best for Israel. I mean, so you can see using her image as a reminder. It's just like this, just like Jezebel, you elevated yourself and you are promoting something that runs completely contrary to what God is actually doing. You have the true prophet of God who is saying, God's upset, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, and, or it's not going to rain until I say so. And you're like, no, that's not right. In fact, I'm going to kill that guy and then it'll rain. So in this case, this Jezebel, is coming into the church and is saying things that are different than what God is actually wanting to say in a way that contradicts what he does. And the ultimate sacrifice is, you may enhance transcendence of God, but you lose the eminence because he is no longer being represented in a way that he desires to be represented. And so he goes on, Jesus goes on and says, I gave her time to repent of her fornication, of her selling out. She's a sellout. I gave her time to repent. Now, again, if she was literally having sexual relations with everybody in the church, can't imagine him going, "I gave her time." So obviously it's something more than that. She did not change her mind. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And again, not literally committing adultery with her. She sold out, talked them into selling out, unless they repent of their deeds. I'll kill her children with death. That's pretty severe. I mean, I kill your children kind of covers death, but he throws that in. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts That's another indication of what he's talking about. He doesn't say, I am going to destroy her so that every other church will know not to commit fornication and not to worship idols. But it's the idea with his piercing eyes, I see your heart. What's going on is something here that's going on in the heart. And he says, I'm gonna destroy it because I see what's happening underneath the surface. I see what's happening behind your, um, your good talk and your celebrity. And But he says, I, I search it. I'll give to each one according to your works. Now, to you, I say, most of you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, not this immoral practice, as many as don't fall into this teaching, who have not known the depths Of Satan. The depths of Satan. What a a phrase. How would you describe the depth of Satan? Like, Satan at his core is what? Well, I would suggest to you that, you know, when you read the Bible, you find out that the depths of Satan is the pride that made the devil the devil, as C.S. Lewis says. Lewis calls pride the mother of all sins because pride is what made the devil the devil. Every other sin is minor, and every other sin happens because it started with the depths of Satan. That's why Jesus could talk to the Pharisees and say, you are of your father, the devil. You're following his pattern. He wasn't saying that you know they got possessed at a rock concert. He's saying that pride that's the most evil, destructive force in the universe is what's making you who you are. And so he says, don't don't do that. Don't fall into that. Hold fast what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then quoting Psalm 2, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. He goes, I get that you want to be a big shot. I get that there's something inside of you that wants attention, that wants more, that wants to be a winner. But he's going, your day will come. But that day is not now. Right now, I need you to be eminent to represent me as the only eminent God that there is in the universe, as the one who humbled himself and gave himself, you know, gave his son to die for people That message is so important. Don't worry. You don't need to be a celebrity. Someday you'll be a great celebrity for all times. You'll sit on the throne. You'll rule and reign with Christ. But right now, that's not what you're supposed to do. That will go counter to everything that I want to do. Hold fast. I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he goes, it's all going to be okay in the end, but right now I need you to understand this. So what do we make of this? How do we make sense of this? I mean, I I think that we would be delusional to think that this temptation that was happening in Thyatira is not something that we still wrestle with because within each of us is a desire to see something big and flashy. and In fact, we would love to see people drawn to Jesus as effectively as possible, but we can't decide to do it in a way that he didn't do it because the message that we have to preach ultimately is a message of eminence. How do we communicate that as opposed to communicating a message of selling out? Now, we know that there are false prophets everywhere. Jesus told us to be ready for that. And when he was, you know, in the Olivet Discourse, he goes, Lots of false prophets are going to come along. And it's interesting that false prophets, where they're so predicted in the New Testament, and yet it's almost never when they're described, they aren't described based on their bad doctrine. Because the truth is, We all have bad doctrine. When we get to heaven, we're going to go, how in the world did I think that? Why did I believe that? God isn't threatened or encouraged by people who have good doctrine as opposed to people who have bad doctrine. That's not the most dangerous thing at all. I mean, you saw in Ephesus, like you're losing your love, so everything else that you're doing doesn't matter. And in Thyatira, it's, you're selling out, but the worst thing is not what you're saying. He doesn't, he isn't really explaining all of the theological errors of this woman. He doesn't say, what part of, you know, that, that the, uh, the pastor needs to be the husband of one wife do you not understand? It's like, that's beside the point. That's not his issue. He, what he is saying is, you better get this. If you're going to represent me A false prophet, one of their greatest indicators is that they are like a pagan prophet drawing attention to themselves. They are self-promoters, they are hustling. That's why Peter, when he listed the characteristics of a false prophet, one of them is that he said, by feigned words, they will make merchandise of people. They turn people into products by fake words. Now, why is that a sign of a false prophet? Because God needs people to represent him who are not simultaneously promoting themselves as they promote him as well, convincing themselves that somehow they're representing God when they think what God needs is a guy like me to really push him. And talk about feigned words, and Pastor Chuck used to talk about this all the time because it's so common. And it's more common now, Chuck would be rolling over in his grave, but except he's in heaven. But, you know, if he saw how much today people are being hustled by merchandising people, marketing people. I, had a, I got an email this morning. I was going through my emails, and there's one from a, a political candidate who, who wants to be president. And the subject matter was John 3.16. And I thought, huh, this should be interesting. So I read the email And dear Dave, I'm like, wow, that's neat. Cool, I've never met him. And he's like, you know, when I was in college, I went to a meeting and I heard John 3.16 and I became a born-again Christian. So please send me money so that I can become the president. I'm like, I wonder if he sent that same email to atheists. I wonder if he sent the same email to even Mormons, or I'm sure he had a different one for Catholics, he, he knew who I was, he's marketing me, and ultimately he's using the gospel in order to try to get money from me. That's what Peter says, that is false prophecy. Now, I don't have a political ax to grind. I, as far as I'm concerned, they're all hustlers, they're all crooks, but when you start messing with the gospel, that's where I get concerned because I don't want somebody marketing Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want people marketing him. Like it or not, he says it doesn't work that way. The message that I'm giving is a message of an eminent God. And an eminent God needs to approach you in a real and a sincere way without a hustle without promotion, without making yourself look good, pagan gods surround themselves by people who are impressive. The true God is a God who promotes himself by people who are close to people. It's why Paul talked about when he wrote about when he first came to Ephesus, he goes, I came to you like a regular guy. I was just working. I was talking to you. I was with you every day. I was connected to you. That's the essence of ministry. It's why like even in the years when Calvary Chapel was just so huge, always, it was interesting that Pastor Chuck always wanted to be around people. It isn't because he's gregarious or he was an extrovert. He was an introvert. He would, you know, if he was going to his own preference, he would just as soon not talk to anybody. I mean, there were times when I drove in a car with Pastor Chuck for two hours and neither of us said anything. And we both loved it. But he understood, I'm representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would always talk to people. He would always go to the back door, all three services, and I would be there watching him. And then finally when physically it got too hard, he'd be in his office. But if anybody wanted to talk to Chuck Smith, they could and he would read his emails and he would do, and it's like, he, he wanted to be that guy because he represents that Lord. And I remember, and I'm sure I've told you the story before, but when somebody, uh, Chuck came after church and he goes, "Well, oh, look at this. Some girl that works at a tailor shop gave me this. And it was a coupon for two $2,000 tailor-made suits over by South Coast Plaza at this place. And I go, wow, are you going to get some new suits? Because he wore these cheap off the rack suits, double knit, didn't fit. And so he laughed and he threw the thing in his trash. So I went to grab it (laughs) and he grabbed my wrist and he took it and he tore it all up because he deliberately didn't want to be that guy. Uh, Chuck loved Cadillacs, but he would never buy a Cadillac because he just thought, oh, I don't want to look like that. Finally, so he would get Oldsmobiles because it was kind of like a Cadillac, but it didn't have the stigma. Finally, when somebody died and they had like a nine, ten-year-old Cadillac and they wanted to give it to Chuck, and I remember him talking to me and going, I don't know, man. I go, you've always wanted it, now somebody gave it to you. And he goes, I just don't know if I want to be representing Jesus and be that guy driving a Cadillac. And I go, Chuck... A Cadillac hasn't been a rich person's car for 20 years. (laughs) It's an old person's car. You're going to be fine. And he drove that car the rest of his life. You know, I love that. I'm not trying to put a trip on people who drive nicer cars. Um, I mean, to some people, my Tacoma would be considered a nice car. And I'm also not like, there are some people who are naturally good looking. You go, it's easy for you to talk like this, Dave, because you're hideous. And I get that. It's the way it is. I, sometimes it gets even worse when I, when I go to the dermatologist and they burn stuff off of me. People can't figure out why I still record the one-minute messages. I had somebody this week tell me, wow, it looks like you got in a battle with somebody with an ice pick. Thanks. But see, if we're going to represent a real eminent God, we need to be real and eminent. And if we begin to get too clever and become too promotional, now, admittedly, it works. It re- people eat this stuff up, especially, and see, it's one of those things where for scams, it always hits like in Thyatira, the working class. It's the people who aren't sophisticated enough to really understand what's happening, that you're being hustled, and you think that this guy actually knows who you are and is appealing to you. You think that this ministry that has over a billion dollars in assets is gonna go under if you don't send them your $10 out of your social security check. It's the people who can afford it the least who fall for this stuff, and they know it. And that's why... Thyatira was a sitting duck for an approach like this because, like man, these people just work every day, and they're willing to fall for this. They're willing to follow a celebrity. Problem is, if we want to represent an imminent God, we can't be that way. Um, a. Z, uh, to- a W Tozer once said one of the best. Things, he said lots of great things, but. He said, you know, people who tell a lie and make it sound like truth are dangerous. But even more dangerous are people who tell the truth and make it sound like a lie. If you tell the truth, but it sounds like a sales pitch, it sounds like a hustle, it sounds like every other thing out there, that can even do more damage. It's important as we represent Jesus Christ to know We are representing him for real. We're not, this isn't a hustle. This isn't a game. This isn't pretending. We deliberately should make sure that what we do, that the sense that people get from our ministry is something that feels like real. Now, as a result, certainly you can get more people by giving away a bunch of free stuff, by putting on a big show, by promoting like crazy and using celebrities to do it. But I suspect that the Jesus who wrote to Thyatira would go, it's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to appeal to people that way because what they will see is, wow, God's great and you're great and I'm just like a supporter. God wants people to understand that he is with you, that he is in our lives. God has been with you all along, and he is so close to you. He is not closer to me than he is to you. He is not closer to Christian celebrities than he is to you. In fact, Jesus said, I'm with you always. And he said, you're actually better off once the Holy Spirit comes into you, that's all of us, once you understand that you don't have to go anywhere or experience anything or buy or sell anything in order for him to be close, now you're beginning to understand who God really is. And that's why I see here in in Thyatira, Jesus is going, I see what's happening. And I want you to understand, ultimately I will deal with it but if I haven't dealt with it yet, it's because I'm trying to be patient. I'm hoping you'll figure this out. But the truth is, the greatest things that I do are not the things that I do through celebrities. The greatest things that I do are the things I'm doing in your life every day. And it's so important that we come to understand that. And if you're here and you're not even, you know, you've kind of rejected Christianity because it just looked like another scam. Look like just another cult. The truth is, he's been with you all along. He is with you. He loves you. He's somebody who can work in someone as flawed as you are. Oh, is he going to make you famous? Probably not. And you'd be better off if he doesn't. God doesn't make people famous. People make themselves famous. People make other people famous. What God makes us is faithful. He allows us to just do what he has called us to do. And that God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you would understand, wow, it's all about sacrifice. It's all about a God who, yes, he's over the whole universe, and he's right here, right now. That's what Jesus was communicating, I think, to Thyatira. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And as much as in our culture, we would think that we just need to do it bigger, better, fancier, and then we could really make you famous. But we look at your example, and it was never that way when you healed people, told them not to tell anybody when a crowd would gather so you would leave, when ultimately you were rejected by almost everyone and you said, I have done everything that the Father has called me to do. Thank you so much for being faithful because your faithfulness means that every one of us can fit in what you want to do. God, if there's anyone here today that thinks you're a long ways away, I pray that you would help them to understand your eminence. You're right here, right now, with each of us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.